Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Good tidings, dear listeners, and welcome to the latest edition of Credit Crunch, part of the Fick Focus podcast series where we focus on all things credit. I'm your host, Noel Hebert, and joining me is Bloomberg Intelligence colleague, Sam Geyer. Today on Credit Crunch, we have a really great conversation for all of you. Craig Packer, co-president and head of credit for Blue Owl. Fascinating story of opportunity and growth. How has Blue Owl come to oversee more than $150 billion? What's driven the interest in business development companies and direct lending? Where are they going? And as relevant, what's ahead for credit more broadly in 2024? We'll cover all of that and more. But first, Craig, really appreciate you taking the time. Welcome to Credit Crunch. Great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Look forward to uh, the conversation. So maybe let's start with you and a little bit of your history and what brought you to Al Rock. You spent some time at DLJ, then Credit Suisse, then Goldman, uh, before co-founding Al Rock in 2016. Maybe walk us through a little bit of your background and what that opportunity was where you, alongside Doug and Mark, uh, led you to start Our Rock. Sure. So, um, I, uh, as you as you mentioned, before st- starting the firm, I was a partner at Goldman Sachs, running the leverage finance business um, for about ten years. And you know, before that, I was at DLJ and Credit Suisse. And at DLJ and Credit Suisse, I worked very closely with Doug Ostrover, who, who many of you know. Um, Doug uh, ran the Credit Suisse leverage finance business. And I worked very closely with him in the trenches for, for years. Um, and Doug left Credit Suisse with two partners. Um, and this would be around 2004 or so to start a business called GSO. Um, GSO used the initials of the founders. Doug's last name is Ostrover. He was the O. And he left that business and GSO started that business and GSO um, became a very successful credit manager. Eventually, they sold that business to Blackstone. Um, and Doug stayed on with his partners to run it for years. And I stayed in close contact with Doug. After he left Credit Suisse, I went to Goldman, had a, a great run at Goldman. And Doug reached out to me and my partner, Mark Lipschultz. Mark was a very um, a senior um, executive committee member at KKR. And Doug had a vision um, that direct lending as an asset class was going to grow and institutionalize. And he asked, uh, you know, I'll tell you more about that and what that vision was. But, you know, just to stay on the personal side, you know, I had this really comfortable seat at Goldman running a big business. And, you know, essentially Doug was asking me, you know, would I consider leaving that seat um, to do a startup with no money, no name, no offices, you know, just to. Just, <laughs> so all know, the good stuff. All the good stuff. And I love Doug and he's a great guy. We're great partners and friends, you know, but I spent months, you know, politely asking a lot of questions because it's felt like a big leap, you know, and he teases me about this to this day because, of course, you know, the the story obviously was a great move and it's worked out really well. And he tends to forget just how daunting it felt at the time to make that big leap into the abyss of doing a startup. Um, But obviously, I'm I'm always thrilled that, uh, you know, that to, to have made that move. Um, and, and a large part because of Doug's vision and the opportunity to partner with Doug and Mark was just, I think, really unique in the course of a career and the kind of opportunity that, you know, doesn't come along, come along every day. 
Um, and so, you know, I'm happy to get into what we saw as a market opportunity, but that's a little bit of the, the backstory. I was at a stage in my career where this, I always thought at some point I might want to get onto the investor side. I'd spend my whole career arranging loans and high yield bonds and selling them. Um, and, you know, there's always this pull, like, I want to be on the decision maker side of things. Um, and this was an opportunity to do so and to do so with a calculated risk with someone like Doug who had helped, who had done it before already and built GSO into a big success. But it felt like a, a leap at the time, um, <laughs> but we were off, off to the races. And again, I'm happy to get into kind of what we saw, but that's a little bit of the story. Yeah, let's maybe do that. I mean, that's certainly a prescient sort of call uh, to, to sort of think about direct lending uh, in, in that time and place. So maybe let's talk about that, that our rock slash pre Blue Owl era a little bit in terms of now you're now you're on board and you don't have anything except for the three of you. Uh, what is that sort of process like of building the business from scratch? Uh, sure. So we um, look, what we saw were two trends that we thought were converging. Um, the first trend was that the private equity firms that that we all knew and worked with, and I certainly worked with in my seat running the leverage finance business at Goldman, were using direct lending solutions more and more. Um, this had been a trend that had been years in the making, um, but after the financial crisis, there was a much greater regulatory scrutiny on how the banks conducted the leverage finance business. There was a, a regulatory regime called the, the, the leverage lending guidelines that got put in place. So there are all these trends making it harder and harder for banks to commit capital um, to support the leverage finance business. And you know we were we were seeing these incursions from direct lenders that weren't constrained by that. So I saw that trend. Um, at the same time, we saw one of the other great lessons from the financial crisis, and I think is you know you really learned what asset classes that were perceived as liquid quickly became illiquid. <laughs> Liquidity is there when you, when, you, when you don't need it, when you need it. Oftentimes, these asset classes aren't as liquid as you think. And so big institutional investors, as well as in the private wealth channel, started to realize, you know, I'm paying a big price for perceived liquidity. I don't necessarily need it. Big institutions have very long time horizons. I can afford to lock my money up for, for longer, you know, if I can get compensated. And so there was this um, desire and willingness to put more money into asset classes like direct lending, which are which are illiquid um, if you can get get appropriate extra return, which we were. So those two trends, the borrowers wanted to borrow more, the investors wanted to, wanted to invest more. And although direct lending had existed for, for a long period of time prior to our founding, um, we thought the opportunity could could really scale in a more meaningful way. And there weren't that many real scale players. Um, you know, at the time, they, they, they might have thought of themselves as scale, but they didn't necessarily see the opportunity that was going to unfold. And so we could come in in a short period of time, become a, a very significant player player in the space. Um, and so that that's what we saw, if anything. You know, I, of the of the three of us, my job is really managing the risk first and foremost. I, I so I'm the, probably the more conservative of the three of us. <laughs> I, I significantly underestimated just how how meaningful those trends were. It became very powerful, and now in hindsight, dwarfed you know what we thought was was available at the time. So, so when you opened up the door, I guess uh, one of the things, I guess one of the perceptions is, is that it tends to be sort of a smaller middle market type of business, or certainly at the origin. Is that really where the opportunity was originally, and then it sort of grew from there, or or did you always sort of start out 
uh, sort of thinking sort of mid or higher or larger ticket type lending relationships? So what we what we wanted to do is go to clients and say, look, if you're willing to sacrifice liquidity, we can deliver a, a really attractive return versus your public market alternatives. But we're going to try to minimize credit risk as much as possible beyond that. So to us, the best way to do that was to find the highest quality, safest loans to make. And that led us to big companies. I'll call it upper middle market companies. We like private equity back deals. We do some that are not, but we like having private equity back. We're almost entirely a first lien lender, top of the capital structure. And most importantly, we're lending to good businesses in recession resistant sectors. We're cherry picking the sectors. So, so in terms of size, our average EBITDA, our cash flow today is $200 million. These are large multi-billion dollar companies. Um, we, our biggest sectors, software, healthcare, food and beverage, insurance brokerage, recession resistant sectors. Um, and so if you do all that and you're really careful on credit selection and you do it in a very diversified manner, um, you can generate really, really attractive returns. So from the beginning, we targeted what, what I'll call upper middle market. But I think this is where there's still, you know, folks are, are not, there's still evolving understanding of the business. I don't call ourselves a middle market lender. We're a direct lender. We're not choosing our opportunities based on the size of the company. We're offering bigger and bigger solutions to companies that previously would have gone to the public markets because they had to, because the size of the solution was not available. And now that we have a much bigger pool of capital, we can provide that solution to bigger and bigger companies one of the stories I think we'll get into in the next few minutes is, is that trend. Why are they choosing direct lending more and more and what's growing, growing the asset class? So from the beginning, so our first fund had about $12 billion of capital. That's, that's, a, that's a pretty terrific way to start a firm. Most firms don't start with $12 billion of capital. What that meant was when we went to meet with the heads of private equity firms that Doug and Mark and I had done business with our whole careers, um, we, they, we were a new firm. They were happy to meet with us. These were our friends. They knew us. And we could show up and say, they say, great, congrats. Tell me about your new business. And we'd chat. And they say, great. You know, we're, we do some direct money deals. Like, how much money do you have? And this is six months, nine months in. We have $12 billion. Well, their jaws would drop. And one, obviously, that's an impressive way to start. That's not the point, though. When we Once they knew we had $12 billion, it changed the tone of the conversation because that meant we could write a $300 million check back when most direct lenders were writing a $100 million check. Now, our check's much bigger today, but at the time, that created a, a much different conversation. Now it's like, oh, well, if you can write a $300 million check, then I can finance this bigger company that I would like to do. I never had the opportunity to do before. And it set us in a much different place in the market to be able to finance bigger companies is direct lending deals as opposed to deals that would have gone to the syndicated markets. Yeah, so a lot of threads that we'll certainly look to pull on there as we sort of move through the conversation. But maybe let's, before we get there, talk a little bit about uh, the, the transition from Owl Rock into Blue Owl. And overall, that her whole horizon, I think, you know, in a little over seven years, you've gone, I, I think you're in excess of $150 billion in assets under management at this point, including $80 billion that's on the credit side uh, that you oversee. 
So maybe I guess take us through, I mean, because that's some tremendous scaling in a relatively short window of time. So I guess maybe help us understand, was it just one of those things that the light switch went on and every everybody realized it and money came flooding in or, or was it more of a grind or I guess maybe what was that progression like? So the business we started was Alrock Capital Partners, um, which is the direct lending business. And look, I, I think that, uh, you know, I, we feel so fortunate, obviously, that the, the metrics that you're citing, you know, we're quite proud of and it's exciting. And, you know, we try not to get dwell on it too much because they're, they're pretty phenomenal. Um, I think our, our timing was right. I think the vision, you know, that Doug laid out was spot on. Um, and I think we executed, you know, we, we, and we leaned into the opportunity. Um, I think that it became clear, you know, as the first um, couple of years unfolded, that the opportunity was even either greater than than we thought. I want to mention one piece to this, and maybe you might want to come back to it later. Um, we have two uh, sources of capital, you know, our, both our institutional fundraising. So that's raising money from pension plans and endowments, insurance companies, obviously the mainstay of, um, you know, any, any alternative credit manager. But we also, part of our vision in Doug's vision early um, was in the private wealth channel. And we were very early on this. Um, Blackstone was really at the time, the only one of scale raising capital in the private wealth space. And from the beginning, that was part of our business plan. And we invested heavily in developing relationships um, with firms like Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley and RIAs around the country. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very significant investment. It's a very significant bet. That, that the private wealth channel will have an appetite for alternatives. And we made that bet. And so that bet now is, is, is a much more popular bet. And, and you'll, you'll, read, you'll hear, and, and you guys have written extensively about this. Um, but back in 2016, it was not maybe quite as obvious. And so we made that bet. And so we were able to raise capital out of the gates and, and consistently and strongly. I, it would be doing a great disservice to, to our team um, to say it was easy. I mean, we worked hard and, you know, and Doug and Mark in particular, there was no meeting we wouldn't take. We would travel around the world and we really got to spend time with our clients and, and have them trust us. You know, although we, we were we had great resumes, we had no track record. They'd ask us, well, can we see your track record? And we'd say, well, there is no track record. Well, okay, but let me see your track record. No, I just told you, there is no track record. Right? We, we each had our own history at our, at our respective firms, but we were not able to market those track records. So think about the level of trust that we had to build with people that we knew, but, but would have to go to their investment committees and say, I want to write a big check to a brand new firm. And how did we do that? Um, you know, was, we spent a lot of time helping them understand how we would manage their money and, and, and develop confidence. I, I want to mention briefly um, kind of the unsung hero of our firms, Alan Kirschenbaum, who's our CFO, um, COO. And so Alan, you know, would run around as soon as we, we had clients and he would spend hours and hours and hours helping them understand our process and procedures and building out the middle back office, compliance, accounting, controls, all these pieces that a big institution, you know, needs to see before they'll, they'll, they'll invest money. Um, so it was a combination of great vision, um, timing was right, and I think really um, terrific execution. To come back to Blue Owl briefly, you know, we scaled the business, we bootstrapped it all, you know, from 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 my partners and I. We we were we were um, funding the firm, and so we were a bit of a victim of our own success because now we're scaling. It's common, 
in our industry for the partners to put new money and new funds. Our funds are permanent capital, so we're not taking out the old money, it's staying working. And so as you're raising bigger and bigger funds, you run into a bit of a problem. How do we keep growing if we got to keep money and putting money in these funds? So that led us to make the strategic decision to take a minority investment in Alrock at the time um, from, from Dial Capital, which is the largest um, investor in general partner stakes, GP stakes. Um, they have a, you know, they really invented the space. Michael Reese and his team invented the space of investing in private equity firms, private credit managers, um, and building a portfolio of premier um, ownership interests in these firms. And so we took an investment from Dial, invested about 20% of our firm for $500 million, you know, which was a fantastic, you know, valuation in, in, in a, in a, you know, within four or five years. Um, and that we, you, all that money stayed in the business, but allowed us to continue to grow. Um, and then we got to know the dial team and Michael and, and the dial team, they were owned by Newberger Berman at the time. And we started to really, you know, think about their business at the time we're each about 25 billion of assets. It was all permanent capital and we were serving the same ecosystem, private equity firms in particular. Um, and we were serving big institutional investors and we had market leadership. And so, you know, we conceived of this transaction um, to essentially merge the dial business itself, which, which owned a stake in us, uh, but managed manage a, a 25 billion of capital um, and the and the Alrock business merge and 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 go public at the same time. And then when we did that, we changed the name to Blue Owl. Um, it wasn't a burning desire for us to go public. That wasn't a reason, you know, why we did the, you know did the transaction. Um, but but Dial being owned by Newberger Berman, you know, we we didn't have you know billions of dollars of cash to give to Newberger Berman, and so we had to give them a currency if that they could feel really confident in the value. And so that was the catalyst behind um, going going public. Um, and so we went public under Blue Owl, and then within a year we did a uh, an acquisition of a real estate business um, um, called uh, uh, Oak Street that um, um, is run by Mark Czar. We acquired Mark's business um, and. Um, and, and that became the third leg of the stool. And so that that's the business blew out, say, 150 billion of AUM, 80 billion in credit, and the rest between the GP stakes um, business and, and the real estate business. Direct lending as a whole has, has grown to what it is now over the past decade. Like, what do, you, what do you find as the distinguishing factors, whether that be, you know, the experience of your team, uh, data and technology, and maybe, you know, relationships you, you had built uh, prior to establishing Blue Owl? So um, all those things you mentioned are certainly important. I think that, you know, we've been very um, deliberate about what asset classes we're in and how we participate in those asset classes. So in each of the businesses we're in, um, we have a market leading practice um, that um, has a differentiated investment um, approach. In the direct lending business, we're a market leader. You know, we, Michael and his team invented the GP stake space. Um, in the real estate business, we have a very interesting strategy called triple net lease, which has investment grade counterparties and long dated leases um, where you can generate really attractive risk adjusted returns. And so we're a market leader in those spaces. We're, we're private market investors. Um, so our investment strategies are very dependent upon the investment acumen of our team, our risk management. Um, we've invested heavily on, on, on those nuts and bolts of how you manage clients' money. Um, the other thing I would highlight as a business model, Blue Owl has focused really 
dedicated to permanent capital. This is very deliberate on our part. When you're investing in illiquid assets, um, it's really helpful to have funding that matches. And so our capital is, is permanent capital. Um, and, and so that makes us an attractive counterparty to someone taking our capital because we're not going to be forced to take, you know, kind of get our money back at some inopportune time. But it also makes us a really attractive business model for our investors at Blue Owl because our, our capital is permanent and it's very fee driven. It's not very gain driven. Historically, in the alternative asset space, particularly in the private equity model, a lot of the income generated by managers can be dri driven by meaningful gains in private equity, which are great, except they're lumpy and unpredictable. So our business model is permanent capital and almost 100% fee-driven income, which means that you know we think we have a very steady, predictable path of growth, and we've been growing at a nice clip. Um, so for the clients, it's market leadership, risk-adjusted returns, significant investment in the team, middle and back office, and, and the like. As a business model, you know, we, we think we found a really sweet spot in the market where the growing interest in the asset classes um, and raising capital in a way that we think is very attractive to our the investors in our company. So then looking forward, like let's say the next five to 10 years, do you see Blue Owl potentially expanding into some other areas of the private credit market or, or is it more about just establishing uh, the growth that you, you're already You've already seen over the past seven or so years um we've been fortunate to have demonstrated really significant growth in the last uh, in the last few years and we've put out um you know some targets over the next couple of years that we expect the growth to continue maybe just to pull apart your question a little bit in in the, in the credit business that i run which is you know again about 80 billion of assets um we will grow um from deploying capital we've already raised that we just have to We've already raised, we just have to put it out. We'll grow from that. Um, we are going to raise additional funds um, in strategies we're already in, you know, second, the second round of our opportunistic fund, the second round of our first lien fund. Um, we're also, you know, have opportunities in, in other adjacent lending asset classes. Um, you know, and I'm speaking here, not the things we're about to launch, but the kinds of things that we'll look at. Um, we have a very, we're probably the market leader in software lending. We have three dedicated tech software lending funds. Um, we see similar opportunities potentially in the healthcare space would be another area that we could consider going into. Um, most of our, almost all of our capital is in what I'll call direct lending, that's sponsor-backed lending. Um, there's a lot of growth opportunities in what I'll call alternative credit. So other um, lending asset classes that are adjacent to direct lending, this could be asset-based lending or royalty finance, um, um, rail car and, and aircraft finance. There's a lot of niche lending strategies that we're doing today, but we could raise additional funds to focus on. We're also, you know, a U.S. lender. And so, we, you know, at some point, would it make sense for us to have something in, in, in London? You know, probably. We're not there yet, but these are the growth opportunities over the next five to 10 years. Um, our GP stakes um, business, um, our last fund was $13 billion dollars. You know, we that fund, that business continues to expand, and they have other products um, that they're offering um, to their clients. Um, probably the fastest growing business over the next five or ten years will be in, in our real estate business, um, which which is um, which is growing you know nicely um, as well. And we have other strategies that we're considering in the real in the real estate space. Um, we will look at acquisitions as well. You know, I think the the model that we have built, um, you know, there are other 
investment strategies that would fit nicely in that type of model. You know, again, what's the playbook? Market leadership, attractive risk-adjusted returns, um, you know, long-duration assets, fee-driven model. We also like assets that um, we can distribute both in the, in the institutional channel and in the wealth channel. And there's other asset classes out there that that have businesses like that. Um, and so, you know, I think that there's a lot of opportunity. I mean, honestly, the hard, we have a high bar. I mean, we, 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 we have organic growth opportunities. We're not growing just for growth's sake. You know, if we find things that fit, you know, the, our model, we will do them. And, and, and if not, you know, we'll grow organically. Um, but, but look, alternatives as an asset class, it's a, it's a, it's a really exciting time. I mean, it, it just, you know, there's, for those of us, you know, we're, we're fortunate to count ourselves in, you know, in, in a small handful of firms that can do this on scale. There's just a lot of growing demand from both institutions and the high net worth sector that, that create, you know, exciting opportunities for us to grow. I guess one question sort of emerges to me as you're kind of walking through that. Well, I guess there's a couple of questions, but but maybe the first one is, is, you know, part of the growth, it seems like on the eternal side is sort of at the expense of more traditional markets. Indeed, it seems like sort of capital's flowing away uh, from more traditional, whether you're talking broadly syndicated loans or, or corporates in a high yield space into things like direct lending or other sort of private lending uh, relationships and engagement. So is, is there something that you think is sort of motivating that? Is that the regulatory backdrop? Is it just people like sort of the accounting treatment? Is it just sort of the match funding on the on the dollars? Like what's, is there anything that you sort of say that's, that's sort of a, a trend that we expect to persist and that's what's driving it? Well, why, why are people putting, why are people putting money, more money in alternatives? Um, the asset classes generate really attractive returns and, and oftentimes meaningfully in excess of the public markets um, and, 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 there, and, and potentially with less volatility, you know, to your point on marks. But I don't think that that in and of itself is a driver. Um, I think many clients do like that, um, that la you know, the fact that it's not as volatile as the public markets. But I don't think that's the driver. Um, I think it's primarily the returns in the asset class are attractive if you do it right. Um, the fact that we're directly originating the product um, allows us to offer our clients a premium return than they could get buying liquid instruments that are intermediated by banks. Just We're just getting better return. And we think our process as a private investor originating directly allows us much more thorough time for due diligence. We structure our loans ourselves. We face the borrowers. If we get greater information after we make the loan. And so we think the credit experience will be better, too, because of our selectivity on the way in and our ability to protect our loans, you know, if there if there's a problem. So the combination of getting better returns day one plus plus better management of your risk over time um, is just attracting a lot of capital. I mean, just to frame it, private equity has been a super successful asset class for years. Um, most institutions have. 15, 20% of their assets in private equity. This is not new. What's new is an asset class like private credit hadn't really existed in a meaningful way before. And now institutions and, and individuals are putting really small percentages in private credit. They're taking that money from their fixed income book. They're taking one or 2% from their fixed income book and massive fixed income books. When I say fixed income, oftentimes investment grade fixed income where you're just not earning very much or they might pull from a high yield allocation or, or a levered loan allocation. They're putting very small percentages into private credit because they're willing to trade a little liquidity. 
Um, and so that's the that's why it's such a great growth opportunity is because they already are comfortable with alternatives. And now they're just putting a small amount into a GP stakes allocation or a private real estate allocation. Last point I would make is institutional investors um, have 15 or 20 percent of their assets and alternatives. The high net worth channel has two percent. And so that's a, a very significant opportunity over the next 10 years as as we work with our partners, to be clear, when we sell in the private net, in the private wealth channel. We're working with sophisticated partners like a Merrill Lynch or Morgan Stanley. We spend years getting them comfortable with our process and procedures, and they, you know, they um, allow us to put our products in their distribution channel and we work with them to sell them to their clients. So that's a huge, huge opportunity. So I think it's small bit, small bits, uh, but but on very large pies. Well, and at least you have a track record now, so there's always that. Uh, <laughs> maybe before getting into uh, specifics, I think maybe it's worth kind of stepping back and, and defining exactly what a business development company is, just so all the listeners can sort of be on the same page in terms of what this architecture looks like. Sure. So we, our first fund, when we started Alrock, our first fund was a, was a business development company, or BDC. I'm going to use B, BDC. Um, which was which is a, a type of structure that had existed for many years, um, but we felt that had you know a bit misunderstood, a bit neglected, um, hadn't always been managed in what we would describe as an institutional institutional quality manner, and so we specifically chose BDCs as the tool that we would raise our first fund in, um, this direct lending fund. I'll, I'll tell you, um, I don't know if I've ever told Doug this. You know, when I first met with Doug. And he was telling me his plans and okay so this is inside information yeah, Super, gonna, this is this is big breaking hear, story he's gonna right hear about this he's gonna hear about this live so i uh he said oh i and i'm gonna i'm gonna have this new business and i'm gonna do it as a bdc and i i'd never heard of it and so i you know doug's such a good guy i nod and i'm like oh that's great so exciting you know i just playing along with it and then i went i went home and i i googled like bdc and i'm like oh my god Doug's lost his mind. Like, this is the worst. Why would you pick this structure? And so, you know, it hadn't really been used in, in, in the scale that we were intending to use it. Obviously, I got comfortable with it. What is a BDC? It's very simple. A BDC is a company, is a corporation. It's registered with the SEC. Um, it's essentially, a, a think of it as a closed-end fund. So it's permanent capital. You raise equity from, from investors um, privately or publicly. And BDCs are, are RICs, registered investment companies. And so as long as BDCs pay out 90 plus percent of their income, they're required to pay 90 percent of their income. There's no tax at the corporate level. And so it's a very efficient vehicle for uh, for lending. Um, and so there there had there were other BDCs at the time, but but most of them were, were smaller. Um, and so we we quickly our first fund at the time was Alrock Capital Corporation. Within within a year, we were the second largest in a year in the BDC space. And Aries Aries had been very successful in the space before. Give them give them uh, full credit, uh, but we were quickly the second largest as a private business development company. Um, and so why why are BDCs why why BDC? It's permanent capital. It's really attractive to clients because it's registered with the SEC. You we have independent board members even even as a private company of independent board members. Um, so investors get those protections. A BDC, you can see every position, every quarter, there's a value attached to it. It's filed 10K and 10Q. 
Um, and so there's, there's really good governance around BDCs. And because the capital is, is permanent, um, they make for really good lending vehicles. Um, we specifically chose BDCs. I think at the time that wouldn't have been an obvious choice. Many, many managers in the direct lending space had um, just GPLP commingled funds. They didn't have BDCs. Um, today, we, we manage seven BDCs. Um, so we've really, it's, you know, it's, it's more than more than 60% of our assets are in the form of BDCs. Most managers in the space have one or two. Um, we have seven and that's been very deliberate and it's been very successful. Part of our growth strategy is focused on, on BDCs. BDCs can be private. Um, but today we manage, you know, based on market cap, the second largest publicly traded BDC, um, which is, which has a ticker OBDC. Um, and so that's the successor to, to Alrock Capital Corp. Um, we also um, uh, just last week um, filed for a listing of another one of our BDCs. So they can be private, they can be public. Um, there's advantages and, and trade-offs for, for all those structures. Do you ever just uh, sing in the office, are you down with OBDC? <laughs> I, uh, I don't, but I, I could try. If you want to sing a couple <laughs> bars, I, I, I might. I, might. <laughs> I, I think you have to be of a certain demographic to know what that means. But uh, uh, all right. So, I, think so, that, I think you guys target that demographic, so I think we're safe there. <laughs> All right. So maybe let's turn a little bit to the current investment climate in terms of how you see the market evolving over 2024. Uh, obviously, federal deficit spending has helped keep the economy out of recession, uh, and we've seen pretty well bid markets in terms of tight spreads, and maybe there's a, a sense that Federal Reserve is going to start cutting interest rates. How does that help you or hurt you in terms of whether it's the impact that it's having on more, maybe the liquidity of traditional lending markets or just yeah. the, the ability to sort of price new deals? So if we went back a year ago, this conversation likely would have been all about how are you going to hold up with higher rates? I mean, there was, there was a lot of anxiety. Rates were significantly higher. Um, we had a book already built out and, and, you know, clients understandably were nervous. And I think, you know, as we, as we kind of look back to, to 23, um, I think it was a really validating year for everything we've been saying to clients for the last seven years of the quality of the type of lending that we're doing, that even with the higher rates, you know, which our companies had to service, um, that the asset class did extremely well, um, well better than, um, than, than, than most expected. Part of that, as you as you say, let's give credit where credit's due. The economy was good. You know, even though rates were higher, the economy was good. Um, but I think I think that would be understating really what happened. Um, I think that that we we back to what I said earlier, the playbook of bigger companies, first lean, recession resistant sectors with sponsor backing, that playbook meant even credits that had a bit of a challenge um, had a way to work their way through. And so we we really experienced not only did we experience no in, in increase in credit issues, but it was a terrific year for our investors because we're a floating rate lender. So what rate, base rates were higher. You know, our clients experienced that with record returns, increasing dividends, growing NAV throughout the year. It was a terrific year. OBDC um, had a total return last year of 40%, 40%. Now that's a combination of dividends and price appreciation. Uh, but it's a pretty, you know, I think we can all agree that's a pretty, pretty, uh, pretty excellent year. Um, so, okay, now beginning of 24, you know, to your, to your point, like, where are we? Um, the economy continues to be very good. Our companies continue to perform well. Um, we're not seeing any underlying weakness, but I'll, I'll be the first to point out 
we are not trying to be an early indicator of the U.S. economy. In fact, we're trying to not be because we're investing in businesses that are very steady. We're, you know, we have little to no exposure in home building and, and auto and metals and chemicals and drilling in these areas that would be the early indicators. We're not, we're not seeing it. And I, I and, and I, I expect even if there were to be any weakness this year that we would be able to, to, to deal with that, that quite well. Um, we're expecting rates to come down. I, you know, we're, I, you know, we're not macro forecasters. We look at the forward curve. We watch the markets like everyone else. It seems like, you know, I, I you know, by the back half of this year, rates will come down. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of where, where, what I would expect to have happen, but you know, maybe it won't, you know, who knows? We we're a long-term lender. We're not trading. Um, when we make a loan for seven years over the course of those seven years, rates will go up and down. Market's going to go up and down. We're, we underwrite to downside scenarios in, in every way you can imagine a downside scenario. As a lender, we don't have upside. So it's all about mitigating the downside. And so, you know, we're, we're I would expect rates to come down. But in the meantime, we're planning um, how our companies are going to continue to service higher, higher, uh, their higher debt, debt load. Long term rates have come down. Short term rates have not come down yet. And so SOFR, which is the benchmark that we use in our market, is still 5.3%. That's what our companies are, our debt service is based on. So I think the next six months, they'll continue to, to be challenges for a limited number of companies in our portfolio. We have a watch list. It's been pretty stable, but those companies are now have been shouldering, you know, higher debt service for a period of time. I think it'll be very manageable um, and, 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 and we'll get to the other side where there'll be lower rates. Here's the thing though, to the guts of your question, direct lending, what we're trying to do is deliver an attractive risk-adjusted return better than what you can get in the public markets in all market cycles. When base rates are high, you'll earn more. <laughs> if base rates go down, you'll earn less, but it's all relative. When base rates are down, you're going to earn less on everything. And so, you know, you can't really just say, well, you're in 12% last year. In two years, you're going to earn nine. That's worse. It's, it's only worse if the base rates are the same. If base rates go from 5.3 to 3.3, that nine's going to look pretty good. And so that's what I expect when the cycle turns that we'll continue to offer attractive risk adjusted returns, um, but it'll be in, in a different in a different rate regime. So I guess with that higher rates regime, what have you been seeing around just broader corporate fundamentals? Like uh, on our end for Noel and I, we do track that for the public markets and, you know, we've seen interest coverage start to, to dip a little bit. Um, what have you been seeing in just in terms of like margins and leverage and, and I guess also with interest coverage as well? Yeah. I mean, we've been tracking this really consistently all last year and into this year. Obviously, we, we look, I just want to say we get tremendous amount of data on our companies, much profoundly different than what's available in the public markets. Um, you know, even, even for a public filer, you know, you're getting, you know, very, you know, you're getting just uh, you're getting an income statement. Right. We're getting micro detail from our companies, um, operating information, speaking to the management teams. You know, we get much more, much deeper complexion. We also have much better covenant packages in the public markets. Uh, you know, the reporting and the covenants, we get we get our finger on the pulse of our, of our companies. There's no question that interest coverage is, is much tighter now than a year ago. You know that, of course, it is because, you know, the rates are higher. What we said publicly is um, Coverage ratios, I don't know, nine months ago, we're in the mid twos. Um, today, as a portfolio, we're, we think it's going to trough at one and a half times or so um, in call it the second quarter. We've been saying that you know, pretty consistently. What's interesting is, is 
rates have stayed higher for longer, but but the trough has stayed the same because the companies have performed better. And so there's been an offset you know, based on performance. I think the average company will be just fine. Um, the higher rates, as I just was alluding to a minute or two ago, um, you know, there's a small number of companies that aren't at one and a half. The average is one and a half. There's a small number of companies that are at one and it's going to be tight. And I, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll work that through with the companies. The private equity this is where the private equity ownership is such a powerful model. We are on average a lender at 40% loan to value, sometimes less. What does that mean? If you're a private equity firm, you've written a check bigger than ours. And if the company is a good company, but just had a bit too much debt, you're very economically motivated to continue to put money in that business and keep the company rather than to turn it over to the lender, particularly if you think rates are about to go down. If you've made it through to this point, you're looking out, do I want to put more money and keep this company? You're underwriting to a lower rate environment. And so we're seeing that. That's been part of the 23 story. I think you'll see more of it in 24, just private equity firms uh, putting money in to, to, to support their businesses. You know, and that's part of our model. I mean, we, we, we work that out with the private equity firms in, a, in a, almost always in a pretty partnership-like manner. Is that really uh, what's helping to contribute? Because I, I mean, I know the default experience uh, for the funds is, is pretty modest, uh, certainly relative to the market at large. Is, is that sort of a big facet there in terms of that private equity engagement piece? So, uh, you know, we uh, appreciate the comment. Our, our loss ratio since inception is six basis points. I mean, it's 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 pretty much almost zero. Um, and and look, first and foremost, that credit performance is a function of our underwriting process, period, full stop. You know, our focus on quality for the portfolios and the credits we're doing, we close on less than 5% of the deals we look at. I mean, it's basically a business of saying no, like efficiently, and then occasionally doing a deal. Um, but I do think that part of the model that works really well is when you have a credit that um, has underperformed for a period of time, the private equity firm ownership can provide a lot of value to us. Now, some of that is just the basics of they can change out a management team. They can change the strategy. They can have the company conserve capital, um, but also they can support it with new capital if necessary. And so it is part of the model. Fortunately for us, it's only relevant in a very small number of situations. Most of our companies, it's not an issue. Their companies are doing fine and they don't need that additional support. But when there is a problem, I think this is a big mitigant uh, for risk is that is that private equity ownership. So I guess digging into the secondary market side of things, you know, there's been some some news articles and everything out there just talking about how some banks are starting to to build out some trading desks around the direct lending deals. Uh, how do you see that just in terms of whether a secondary market makes sense in, in this particular market? Like, is there enough volume for, for that to be successful or or how do you see it, especially since looking at your background, you you were kind of in that role in a way. So, yeah, I um, <laughs> I, I want the record to show I'm saying this with a, with a smile on my face. I mean, I I can appreciate why, you know, if you're on a trading desk and you're seeing your your market, the public markets shrinking and this other market growing um, and you're a trader or you're running a fixed income business, you're going to say, well, maybe we should trade that. Um, you know, the reality is we are deliberately designing it to be illiquid and not traded. Um, we control the information. The companies don't want their information out there. 
The companies care about who their lenders are. They don't want uh, the owner the ownership of the loan to change hands. We don't we don't need the liquidity. We don't welcome the trading activity in our loans. We have no particular interest in the trading activity. Um, and so I and and just there's such a severe information disadvantage um, that it's I think it's very hard to pull off. I it's possible that you know there's there's you know some really large loans in our space and possibly someone could try and make, make a market but the really large ones they're performing really well they're trading at par you know no trader's going to get really excited trading some you know something that's bid you know par par and a quarter you know it, it's just not it's just not i think a, a i think you know if you dig into it it's hard to see um the op- the opportunity now i will tell you for your your listeners out there that think there is an opportunity um, if they have offerings of loans that they would like to show us, we would welcome seeing them. <laughs> and I look forward to seeing uh, their their offerings um, and and size and price. And we would we would pay very very good attention to them. But I think it's going to be very difficult. So uh, another part I want to kind of touch on there. You brought it up just in terms of the this relationship between direct lenders and banks. Uh, and I think there was actually a Bloomberg news article that came out yesterday talking about how they're starting to go head to head now that, you know, direct lenders have taken a little bit more of the market share uh, of deals. How do you see that relationship, uh, you know, growing over the next couple of years, just in terms of fighting over over these deals that maybe the banks weren't weren't working on over the past year or so? The, look, the normal state of affairs you know, for, for since, you know, our seven years in existence is that direct lenders and uh, direct lenders compete with the syndicated markets all the time. Um, that is by design. Um, they're going to be borrowers that prefer public markets, borrowers that prefer the direct markets. And our business model is not predicated on the banks not underwriting. Um, what has happened, though, is as much bigger pools of capital have formed, we can do direct deals much bigger. Today, it's common to do one to three billion dollar deals, and we are also regularly looking at five billion dollar deals. And so, we're just competing for that at much bigger, much much larger deals. And and you know, candidly, we're having great success there. And I think that trend will continue to direct lending. Um, having said that, it's not because there there are periods of time where the banks also don't want to underwrite because their markets are dislocated. The banks are just making a distribution judgment based on particularly what the CLOs are willing to buy, you know, and so periods of time when the CLOs don't have a lot of capital, you know, the banks become very conservative on their underwriting. We saw this in the first half of last year in periods of time like that, our market share, you know, just, just goes up very high. I mean, the first half of last year, direct lending probably had hundred percent market share for a period of time, but that's, that's the, those spikes are just temporary moments in time. Now we're in a more normal market sponsors, you know, can choose, when the market, when the syndicated markets are attractive, um, they'll consider that as, as an alternative. And so our model is not built on the banks not willing to do it. Um, they're willing to do it. The banks offer a different solution than what we offer. I think sometimes it's perceived to be the same exact thing. It's not the same thing. What we offer is a deal with price certainty, no flex. We hold the loan. You know who your lender is. We keep it. It's private information. Um, there's a relationship. We can structure it. It's customized. The banks are offering is an intermediated solution with flex. We're going to sell it to CLOs. It will then trade in periods of time. If things are good, no problem. If there's issues down the line, instead of the bank owning the loan or the CLO owning the loan, 
might be owned by a distressed investor whose basis is 60 cents on the dollar and has a very different motivation. That model, um, you know, is just a very different model. Um, so it's just it's just different, different solution. And we are finding the private equity firms more and more are preferring the direct lending solution and they're choosing it, even though the banks are also willing to underwrite. So let me come in with a, a multi-parter for you. So as you noted, sort of, you know, Blue Owl tends to lead on a lot of its deals. I think the stat is like 85% of the deals that you're involved in, uh, you're the lead. Given the scale that you've amassed, I guess, you know, a few questions. One, uh, you know, is there sort of a minimum size check that you're looking to write to make it sort of worth your while? Uh, and then kind of looking at the structure of those those loans, uh, you know, are there certain covenants that you'd like every deal has to have, you know, a certain maturity profile, a certain call protection or covenant packages? And I guess lastly, because we talked about sort of the, the illiquidity premium uh, that the market enjoys relative to the maybe the more public markets, where is that liquidity premium do you estimate on average? Sure. Um, <laughs> minimum size, you know, my team will chuckle at this. I'm constantly kind of haranguing the team um, when they bring smaller deals that we, we, you know, we don't have the resources to do them. And then, you know, I relent. Um, and so... Look, we, we prize diversification, and so there's a willingness to do deals that might be smaller than you would think for a size pot. We're an $80 billion platform, and, and we will still write a $50 million check. Um, and so we, we, you know, we have a big team. You know, we have 130 people on our investment team. We're set up to, to be able to manage lots of investments. Um, and so for the smaller check, um, if it's a growing company or a sponsor that's important to us, or just an extremely high-quality deal, we'll do it. Um, and um, and I, I think that that's a strength of ours and working with the private equity firms, we're still willing to do deals on the smaller end. Um, and, and so, you know, below 40, 50 million dollars, you know, probably isn't isn't worth it. It's as much about the size of company as it is the size of the check. You know, we we we're willing to do deals for companies, 20, 30 million of EBITDA, but those are small. They have to be really, really high quality companies or averages 200. So that's the size in terms of the you know your other questions. Our loans are five to seven years. They're almost all floating rate. Um, you know, we we typically will have maintenance covenants, but as you get to these much bigger companies, there's more covenant light being done in our market. Um, I think that that's a very manageable risk. Um, clients ask about it all the time. It's very important to understand when we do covenant light in the direct lending market, it's very different than covenant light in the syndicated markets. Um, you know, even if we do are doing covenant light, which means lack of a maintenance covenant, the rest of our credit protections are really tight and thoughtfully done. Um, we also have simpler capital structures, so we don't have, you know, lender-on-lender lender violence type issues that you'll hear about in the market. So even, you know, covenant light shouldn't scare investors, in my opinion, on direct lending. Um, it's the natural evolution for the size and flexibility of companies that, that we're financing. But the rest of the packages are very are very consistent. Um, look, part of our you know, call protection just varies on the deal. It's, you know, loans are generally, you know, prepayable in the first year or two, we'll have a call protection 102, 101. It's, it's, it's not a very um, daunting prospect. What, what, there's no standard playbook. I think what we offer to our borrowers is the ability to customize. Um, and so what we like to do is talk to the private equity firm, the company, like what is important to you? You can't do every single thing that you want, but if you're, you're putting, you know, if your thesis is growing through acquisition, we will do a delay draw term loan to allow you to help grow and we'll, we'll help facilitate this. Um, and so different, some sponsor, I, I don't want that, but I, I want the lowest cost financing. 
Um, and so, you know, we'll we'll put these trade-offs in. There's no standard playbook. I think that's one of the great um, attributes in terms of the illiquidity premium. I would cuff it cuff it for you simply that we can charge 50 to 100 basis points of additional spread or yield, um, but we also are capturing fees that would have otherwise gone to an intermediary that our clients are getting. And so that can add another 50 to 100 basis points of return. So the combination of those two, you know, call it 100, 150 basis points of, of additional return. Those are those are very rough because we're not when the when you see first lien term loan from a direct lender, and you see first lien term loan in the syndicated market, you might look at those and say, well, those are the same. What we often do is what's called unitronch, is a term of art, which is a first lien term loan from a seniority standpoint, but it goes through a bit deeper in the capital structure. So it goes through a leverage level deeper than what you would see in the syndicated market. And so, um, and so that, because we're willing to go a bit deeper, we get paid a nice additional spread on the whole loan. Now we're comfortable with it because we attach a dollar once or the first creditor. Um, and so, you know, give or take syndicated loan pricing might be 400 to 450 over um, Unitron's pricing will vary, but it could be 550 to 600 over. Um, and so you're getting, you know, a really, a really healthy uh, premium there. So I want to dig in just briefly here on the the competitive landscape uh, for for you guys looking through your your credit outlook. You guys mentioned briefly the acceptance rate. Can you just walk us through, you know, what that acceptance rate is for the deals that you do, and then do you think that that acceptance rate kind of implies that that there's enough deals to go around for you know the broader uh, market? So. Um our hit rate on deals we look at is less than 5%. I think that's what, you know, you're calling acceptance rate. I mean, that is, you know, that's our bread and butter credit selection process. You know, we have a very high bar um, and we, we, we only do deals that you have to remember, we work on deals for months. So when we say no, we're saying it no at the beginning of that process. We're not spending months evaluating something, burning a bunch of uh, sponsors time and our time and saying no. So we're, we're set up to say no quickly on most things and then dig in um, on things that, that we care about. Um, there's, there's um, last year, there was plenty of deal flow. Um, you know, the pacing varied. The first half of the year was slower. The back half of the year was much more active. Um, and, um, and so there's plenty of deal flow. Um, you know, oftentimes if we say no to a deal, someone else will do it. And so, you know, not always, but, but, but oftentimes. Um, and so I think the market is, Generally in balance, there's a lot of capital business rate in, in private in private credit direct lending, uh, but a lot more deal flow is coming into private credit and direct lending at the same time. Um, the sponsors can get deals financed if they're of high quality. Um, at any moment in time, you know, a little, it'll be a little easier, a little harder. There's an ebb and flow, but that's a sign of a fully functioning market. I do think, though, as the asset class has grown, um, that, you know, the bigger platforms of which we're one will continue to be the winner. The, the sponsors want to work with the same firms, in, you know, on a frequent basis. They don't want to do four loans with four different lenders. They want to work with the same lenders and they want to work with firms that have scale, team, relationship, resources, um, you know, and do the and like to do the kinds of deals that they that they like to invest in. And so we're that is core to our business model is being that partner of choice um, for for the private equity firms. If you're a smaller firm and you don't have you can't write the same check, don't have the team, don't have the relationships, you might find it harder to find deal flow. Um, you might get small pieces of 
of deals you know that that maybe we, we don't have room for um, but i think if you're a big firm um you'll continue to have um uh, plenty of deal flow again it'll ebb and flow you know we always want more um and 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 but we've we've had you know pretty you can look from our track record of seven years we've had great success at originating this trend to direct lending is really powerful when we talk about doing deals three five billion in a clip i mean we, we say that casually i mean think about you know as 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 a as an asset class how how much that's growing the asset class if one deal um can be four billion dollars we can't do that to ourselves we need other lenders so it's it i think things are in balance it'll ebb and flow but i think there'll be plenty for direct lenders to do over the next handful of years i want to stay mindful of time here which unfortunately means i have to leave probably about two dozen questions on the table but let's maybe ask a couple more just to bring it into the close. And, and we'd be remiss not to ask sort of about the regulatory backdrop because obviously there's a lot of chatter out there in terms of direct lending or any kind of private credit instrument, uh, whether it's the regulators or the competitive set all wanting either more transparency or more regulatory oversight. Uh, clearly through the BDCs, as you mentioned, you're sort of registered with the SEC. How do you look at the the investment landscape relative to your business today? Do you think it's it's about right or do you think there's a little more to come? A little more to come in terms of regulation, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, look, we obviously follow uh, regulatory developments closely. Um, that's part of being an, you know, a lender, whether you're, you're a direct lender or, or a bank, we follow closely. Um, and whatever regulatory changes you know, may evolve in the next handful of years, we will, we will adapt to them. Um, there's nothing in particular that I'm aware of that I think is of great concern in the business. Uh, but but I also appreciate having been in this industry for many, many years that when you have growth, um, sometimes that can attract questions and, and, and invest and regulators focused on the investors. And so, you know, I, I don't have a problem with that. I would just make a couple observations. Um, you know, I think coming out of the financial crisis, there was a great desire by regulators um, to protect depositors. I mean, I think that was one of the great focuses post-regulation, uh, post-financial crisis. And so some of those actions, um, you know, and I'm not just talking about corporate lending. I think that's across, you know, all the banking system were designed um, to reduce risk at the banks. And so I think this trend in our part of the world is consistent with other trends, um, which is certain activities migrating away from banks funded by depositor money, you know, which, which is understandable from a regulatory standpoint. Um, our investors are, are either like very large institutions who are consciously, knowingly willing to tie up their money um, or, or very you know, wealthy individuals who are coming into funds that are equally tying up their money. And it's very important. The fact that the, the capital can't be pulled out quickly, I think is designed well for the types of lending that we do. You know, it's matched. What you don't want to have is mismatch. We, we, I won't have. I don't have to give you the parade of headlines when there's mismatch, mismatch funding between assets and liabilities is where you have problems. And I, I, I would think that the way we've structured direct lending today um, is is pretty well designed. And so, I, you know, whatever regulatory initiatives come, you know, we, we, we will we will respond to them. But I just would observe that I think that the actual practices. Um, you know, are, are reasonable, and you've seen that in terms of credit, uh, in terms of uh, credit performance. Um, so we'll see. Um, but I, you know, I the last point we're, you know, I it drives us, you know, crazy. You know, you hear terms like shadow banking. I mean, 
we, we I've already told you almost all our assets are in BDCs. Every single position I have, you know, you're, anyone listening to this podcast can go Google a document and in six minutes have every position and a mark every quarter. And you can look at it since we've been inception. So I think it's, 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 it's very clear. And, um, and I, you know, I, won't say, you know, you, none of us, I don't think anybody, <laughs> any business person like wants more regulation, but I, I would just also offer that I think that what we're doing is is responsible and, and well-designed. Excellent. And I guess maybe last question for you. I mean, clearly, uh, you know, as we've talked about here today, it's been a pretty amazing seven years uh, for yourself, for the firm. Is there a lesson or two that you take away that you think is sort of most valuable for anybody out there, whether regardless of where they are in, in their sort of journey in their career uh, that you would pass on? Um, well, you're very kind to ask the question. I, 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 uh, I'll share a thought or two, but I don't take it, take it for what it's worth. I mean, I, I, I give Doug a lot of credit. You know, Doug, Doug had been very successful in his career, could have, could have decided to sort of have his own business, put his own name on it. You know, he really wanted to have partners and reached out to, to Mark and I to be his partners and and share in, in, in a partnership way. Um, and I think that was a real extraordinary decision that a lot of people wouldn't necessarily have made. And I think that part of our success as a firm start, started with and to this day um, is, is from that partnership and in, in, in where we, we work together and we try to build a culture. And we've had added additional partners and Michael Reese, who runs Dial and Mark Sarr, that run, runs runs um um, Oak Street and just but keep that small firm partnership culture um, even though we've gotten a lot bigger we really continue to focus on culture and the people and our, I'm just as proud beyond our, our some of the financial metrics I'm just as proud at the team we've built and the retention of the team and the and the, and the folks that are here who made the bet early now and have had great careers and we know their families and you know I, I think that that investment and the partnership and the people um, I think are um are a really important lesson, you know, on a personal basis, you know, I, I took a risk to do it. I, I think it's, it's, you know, it's hard sometimes for people to, 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 to make that, to take that risk. And I think that, you know, in my case, obviously, you know, it paid off. I won't tell everybody to take every risk that comes their way, but I think it's also, you know, I'm glad I had the, the courage to do it because it took a little bit of courage and, and, and I, you know, people can decide for themselves whether they would take that same risk. But I think, you know, at some point in your career, taking making that that bet, um, you know, if it doesn't pay off, it doesn't pay off. But just having having the courage to do it. So there's other business lessons along the way that you know we kind of touched on as we go. But just at a, at a personal level, I, I guess those would be a couple. Fantastic. Well, it's been certainly great to get down with the OBDC today. <laughs> so, Craig, on behalf of Sam and myself, thanks so much for your time and insights. We certainly look forward to uh, the continued growth of Blue Owl. For our listeners, thank you for joining us once again. Please be sure to follow, comment, and share. This has been Credit Crunch. 